Hello and welcome to Foxed, the practical podcast series from Fox & Partners. In these podcasts, we'll be looking at scenarios from our day-to-day practice, offering solutions to some of the most pressing partnership and employment law questions we hear from our clients. Our goal is to offer a digest of some of today's key issues in a succinct and practical style that we hope you'll find useful and engaging. Thanks for listening. Welcome to part two of this podcast series on mediation. I'm Shoshana Bakul, a legal director at Fox & Partners, specialising in employment and partnership law. In the last episode, we looked at what mediation is, the benefits of mediation, how best to prepare for one, and busted any misconception that offering mediation is a sign of weakness in a case. Now to pick up where we left off last time, welcome back Rachel Bicknell, founder of Squaring Circles and recognised in the Legal 500 as a leading UK mediator. Thank you for joining me again today. Hi Shoshana, thank you. It's wonderful to be back. Rachel, as a seasoned mediator, you will know there are so many reasons why clients should consider mediation. We explored these in part one of this podcast. But I suppose one of the reasons why parties might nonetheless lean towards litigation is to have the full force of the court's enforcement powers if a party doesn't comply with a judge's order. What's your experience of non-compliance with mediated agreements? Well, in the three years I've been mediating, I'm not aware of any party failing to comply with a mediated settlement. I'm sure it does happen in the same way as some parties refuse to voluntarily comply with a court order. Interestingly, CEDAR's recent 10th mediation audit surveyed mediators' experiences around this issue and the enforceability of mediated settlements. Their findings also revealed that the majority of mediators had either never or rarely encountered any issues. There will be cases where claimants take the view that it's better to go to court to get a judgment rather than enter into a negotiation or mediation. For example, in domestic disputes, a court order might be needed to seize the assets of the defendant or where protective or interim orders are needed. Those types of cases aside, providing you have solicitors at the mediation, which is almost always the case, and they're there to draft any settlement agreement. If an agreement is reached and signed on the day, you will have a legally binding agreement. And if litigation is already afoot in the High Court, then the parties may want to simultaneously apply for a consent order from the court to conclude the proceedings and record the terms which have been reached. Often, the best way of doing this is via a Tomlin order, which effectively ends the claim other than for enforcement purposes, and enables the parties to apply to the court to enforce the order if one party reneges, but without having to commence new proceedings. Another key advantage with the Tomlin order is that the settlement terms can be contained in a confidential schedule and so kept away from public view. So it's usually a two-pronged approach. In the context of settled employment tribunal claims, although there's no equivalent system of Tomlin orders, it's advisable that any settlement agreement should include a specific requirement for the claimant to inform the employment tribunal that their claim is withdrawn. And once withdrawn, the tribunal then issues a judgment dismissing the claim, which prevents the claimant from relitigating their claim against the respondent in the future. So it gives greater finality and certainty to the parties. Yes, and for international disputes, the considerations might be slightly different depending on the jurisdiction of the dispute. It's also worth mentioning that, uh, interestingly, there have been various studies conducted in the US which suggest that settlements that parties agree to themselves 
are more likely to be complied with than decisions imposed by a judge. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it highlights the importance of mindset in the mediation process. I expect parties feel they have more ownership over the terms of the agreement reached and so are more willing and able to abide by them. It also shows the benefit of having a solicitor involved who can ensure the terms of the settlement are properly and accurately recorded in an agreement, which should go towards future-proofing it somewhat against disagreements on the terms of settlement at a later date. Rachel, what about clients who might have had a bad experience of mediation? I've represented clients in mediations where I've questioned why the other side has come at all because they are completely disengaged from the process. One memorable experience many years ago involved everyone turning up to the mediation and within minutes of it beginning, the other party walked out, giving the impression that their dramatic departure was very much a staged tactic in an attempt to intimidate the other party into dropping their claim or accepting a low-ball settlement. Rachel, how important is mindset and psychology when approaching a mediation? Well, before we get to mindset, I'd like to think that the example you give is very rare, particularly in more recent times where mediators have become more sophisticated in our approach to process design and working with the parties in the preparing and convening stage of the mediation. And of course, lawyers having become more experienced in mediation advocacy. So this sort of thing shouldn't really happen in a mediation. And thankfully, I've not shared any similar experiences It should be pointed out that parties are signing an agreement to mediate which states they're coming to the mediation in good faith to attempt to resolve the dispute. In my view, solicitors have a duty to explain that to their clients before they agree to enter into mediation. In relation to process, the mediator should be doing a lot of pre-mediation day work with the parties which should further remove any risk of this sort of thing happening. Again, it ties into what we were talking about in part one of this podcast. The key to success is good preparation for the parties and the mediator. So for me, the mediator should be discussing with each side during the preparing and convening phase, whether there's going to be an opening plenary session, the purpose of that session and who is going to speak at it. And if there is a risk of a plenary session being disruptive or destructive to the process, that needs to be properly managed by the mediator. The mediator should know or have a very good idea of what each speaker is going to be saying and should be giving guidance to all parties on what would be helpful and persuasive and what wouldn't be helpful. And of course, the mediator can only do this if there's been a pre-mediation day meeting with each side in advance. But ultimately, there should be no surprises from a plenary session to the point that a party walks out. And I guess it goes back to one of the benefits of mediation, that the parties and their solicitors can work with the mediator to design the mediation process itself. Yes, absolutely. And it's back to this importance of preparation. And in relation to mindset, it's important for the mediator to discuss expectations with each or all sides uh, at the pre-mediation day meeting. And again, as part of the mediator's opening statement, The parties shouldn't come into a mediation expecting to get everything that they want. To get a negotiated settlement, both or all sides need to be able to declare some sort of victory. So it's important for the mediator to remind the parties that they may not get everything that they want, but that everyone must, at the very least, walk away with something that they can live with. And that's why the party's interests, concerns, needs, priorities and motivations. So 
all those things that lie beneath and drive the party's positions are so important to unlock impasse and pave the way to finding a resolution. Mm, That's a really useful insight. I'd like to move us on now to talk about timing. During the litigation process, there are distinct pressure points when costs and resources are at their highest, and parties will often strategically turn their minds to settlement. For example, just before fees are incurred to prepare detailed witness statements, or prior to the cumbersome stage of disclosure, or perhaps before instructing counsel. Rachel, from your perspective, is there an optimum time in the litigation process to commence mediation? What I've got in mind here is whether there are particular points in litigation when mediation becomes more or less effective. It's a really good question. and I don't think there is any hard and fast rule. In each case, it's a judgment call for those involved in the dispute. For me, it all comes down to making sure the clients, the decision makers, are in the best position to make good commercial decisions. So providing your clients have enough information to make those decisions I don't see the need to wait to a particular stage in the litigation process to mediate. I've only had one mediation in my career so far where on reflection, I felt the parties were not ready to mediate. There was a specific reason for the mediation taking place when it did. However, it transpired that one party was unable to reach an agreement because they'd not been afforded the time to research and consider their alternatives and put a value on those alternatives. The mediation did improve dialogue and communication between the parties and cleared up a number of misunderstandings and assumptions on both sides. But ultimately, this example demonstrates that if the parties have not had the chance to, again, prepare properly, the mediation may not be successful. But different people will have different views on the best time to mediate. And as I say, it's a judgment call and it will be different for each dispute. If the issues are understood at a high level, I think the parties can mediate. And increasingly, I'm seeing parties mediate before or shortly after proceedings have been issued. So maybe it's a case of no time is a bad time. But I can also see that in some cases, the parties may have to actually proceed some way into the litigation process before they realise the extent of what's at stake and so the benefits of what mediation could offer. When it comes to disclosure of evidence, this can be a pivotal point in the litigation process, which can often be a trigger for settlement discussions. In your experience, how vital is it for disclosure to have taken place before mediation? Well, I can understand why solicitors might feel disclosure is necessary before mediating. I think as advisors, ask yourself, what is the purpose of disclosure How important is the documentary evidence to resolving this dispute as opposed to winning it in court? How likely is it that there will be a smoking gun in the disclosure bundle? In my experience, clients usually say they wish they had mediated earlier. Rarely do they say they wish they had waited longer. Mm. Yeah, I can see that playing out and it's definitely worth reflecting on. Rachel, most of our listeners will be associated with partnerships or employment disputes. At Fox, we regularly advise on how to handle relationship breakdown in the workplace. At the senior level of leadership, breakdowns so often stem from a tension between egos or personality clashes, which are seen as an impossible impasse ending with one party being forced to leave the business. 
Rachel, what's your experience of whether mediation is an effective tool to enable both parties in a conflict to remain in the business? Yeah, so uh, employment, boardroom, partnership and workplace disputes are all very well suited to mediation. These disputes tend to be very emotionally charged and there will often also be at least a perceived emotional imbalance between the executive or employee and the organisation. They also often cause wider divisions within the board or the partnership or the team or even the whole organisation. And one or more of the parties often will feel a strong sense of unfairness or injustice or even outrage. And rightly or wrongly, they can see themselves as the victim of wrongdoing, whether that's by the other board members or co-partners or the organisation. In these types of disputes, mediation can be very effective to at least allow both parties to remain in the business. It can offer breakthroughs which can disentangle the emotional impact of a contentious employment or partnership dispute. And mediation is also very effective where the aim is the parties working towards an agreed outcome, which might be an action plan or a commitment to each other. For example, how they will communicate and when a commitment to weekly review meetings or support that will be put in place. And in my experience, if the hope is to restore the relationship, it's really important to mediate as early as possible before the relationship has irretrievably broken down and before the parties have become entrenched in their positions. If the dispute has gone beyond the point of repairing or restoring the relationship or it's not been possible to achieve that in the mediation, its objective may switch to finding a way for the parties to terminate their relationship, move on, but leave them in a better place than they would otherwise be after a lengthy and costly court battle. The ACAS research I mentioned in part one of this series identifies effective conflict management as being critical in maximising productivity and efficiency in organisations. How important is it for managers to have conflict competence? Well, yes, the ACAS report made for rather depressing reading, didn't it? Uh, Conflict is inevitable in every part of an organisation. It's how it's dealt with that matters. And we now know that conflict in the workplace and how UK organisations and businesses are dealing with conflict is costing them billions of pounds every year. And from a risk management perspective, I would say that mediation reduces the risk of losing employees or uh, from claims from employees. So it's imperative for business leaders and managers to know about mediation and to be equipped with conflict competence, i.e., conflict management skills to engage early and deal effectively with conflict within their teams and organisations and to have processes in place to refer disagreements and differences to mediation as quickly as possible. And by that, do you mean that managers should be trained mediators? I wouldn't go so far as to say all managers need to be accredited mediators, but there are some amazing training courses available that give managers the negotiation, conflict management and mediation skills training that would significantly improve how conflict is dealt with within their organisations. Any formal mediation needs to be carried out by an accredited mediator who is impartial and independent. What I'm talking about here is having a manager that is skilled in managing conflict before it gets to the stage of needing mediation, as that can be hugely beneficial. So, for example, a manager trained in managing conflict might be able to deal with employees in such a way that conflict arises less often 
or they might be able to assist employees and their team to resolve their differences as between themselves before they become a full-blown dispute. They will also be more educated on how to handle disputes as they escalate, for example, knowing when it's time to bring in an external mediator. They can also be instrumental in implementing policy change within an organisation, for example, replacing more traditional grievance and disciplinary procedures with a resolution policy. And if conflicts are resolved early, there'll be a welcome knock-on effect to improved mental health and general positivity in the workplace. If conducted early and as part of a resolution process, the ACAS report would suggest mediation is very likely to reduce stress, anxiety and depression in the workforce. Adopting mediation to resolve conflict makes good business sense, but it also feeds into what you want the culture of your business or organisation to be and to employee wellbeing and engagement. Ultimately, it provides employers with an opportunity to resolve disputes and disagreements constructively and with empathy. On that positive note, that brings us to an end to this podcast series on mediation. Rachel, thank you for your invaluable insights, and I hope those listening will bear in mind the benefits of mediation when they are next advising on or involved in a dispute, and will view mediation as a genuine tool to shorten the life of a conflict and get to a resolution quicker. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Foxed for more practical insights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foxed, and we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe via your usual podcast platform or you can find more details at our website, foxlawyers.com.